Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hevite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with the livestock, his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters to us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us. The land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Uh, sorry. If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Yeah. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give it according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who was uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you if you will become like one of us, and that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become out one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let us live in the land and trade in it. Let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us and live with us to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised. And as they are circumcised, they will not, uh, will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours. Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. All who went out of the city, gate of the city, listened to Hamar and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Now it came about on the third day, when the men were in pain, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took a sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came with the slain, upon the slain, and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field, and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. 
Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and Pezzarites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. And Lord, we come upon this most difficult and dark chapter. We do pray that you would help us, Lord, as we journey through and journey on through this chapter to help us to see what we might learn from this dark and disappointing incident. Give us ears and hearts and minds to hear and to understand and believe. Let your grace be with us, Lord, to learn what we can learn. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I do once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we come now to, and I'm sure that as we were reading you could gather as much, one of the darkest chapters in the history of the patriarchs, and indeed, one of the darkest chapters in all of the pages of sacred scripture. It is one of those chapters where we might even question its purpose and significance in God's plan of redemption. It is one of those chapters that if I was not successively teaching through the book of Genesis, I would altogether avoid this chapter. And yet, this chapter is part of the all-scripture of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, that is, breathed out and inspired by God and useful for the man of God. Therefore, as difficult as this chapter is, it is imperative that we seek to understand what both the first readers would understand from reading this chapter, what we here today might understand from this chapter, and also how this chapter fits into God's plan of redemption, because it seems to be almost insignificant. There is almost... No good thing that we can learn from anyone in this chapter. So then with God's help this morning, we will consider three points that we hope to gain from this dark and difficult chapter. Number one, stopping short of obedience. And to emphasize even more, stopping one day short of obedience, stopping one day short of obedience. This is verses 18 and 20 of chapter 33. It says this. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came to Padam Aram and camped before the city. He bought a piece of land where he pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father. For 100 pieces of money 
Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. In the previous chapter, we saw Jacob overcoming his weaknesses. He has struggled both with God and man. And he has prevailed against God and against man or with God and with man. God has sent him back home to Canaan. Both to take possession of the land that he had promised him. And then also to reconcile with his distant brother Esau whom he had defended. The Lord God met Jacob the night before his reunion with Esau. And it was there on that sacred ground that God took the form of a man and wrestled with Jacob all night long. The Lord was kind to Jacob. He allowed Jacob to prevail in that grappling match. The Lord gave Jacob, after the match, gave Jacob a new name. And a new walk, a new limp, to be a mark that he was a changed man. From this point forward, Jacob the supplanter would be known as Israel, the man who has contended or prevailed against with God. Jacob would then meet Esau, and with a great deal of, uh, a great display of humility, Jacob would be given mercy and shown mercy by Esau. The two brothers who had been grappling since the womb had made peace with one another and they were reunited. And Jacob entered both of those circumstances, both in his grappling with God and in his encounter with Esau. He entered both of those circumstances from a position of, of weakness. Unless we be mistaken, Jacob... He did not emerge from those situations, those circumstances, without somehow some kind of strength. But Jacob emerged or triumphed through his weakness. Meaning this, Jacob was still weak. Even though his name was changed, his limp was a reminder that you will always be weak before God. We have been changed. But we are not somehow strong and, and mighty. We are always limping before God. We must always remain humble before God. But it seems as though, rather quickly even, Jacob has forgotten his new name and his new limp. What was left for Jacob to do after he has had this encounter with God and his reconciliation with Esau? What was left for Jacob to do? All that was left for Jacob to do was ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. We almost get the sense of that once he leaves his brother. And then Jacob lived happily ever after. That was all that was left for him to do. Go home, Jacob. Go back to Bethel. Bethel was uh, the sunset that God was calling him to. Return to Bethel. Return to the place where God first appeared to you. Settle there in the place where you saw the angels of God ascending and descending. Return to the place that you called the gateway of heaven. It was there that he was committed to build an altar to the Lord. 
It was there where he would inherit the promised land. It was there in Bethel where Jacob would have his happily ever after. But sadly, dear ones, the Bible is not a fairy tale. The Bible is a true and honest account of true and honest sinful human beings. There would be no happy ending for Jacob at this time. Rather, the happy or would-be happy ending takes a sad, downward, spiraling turn. It's very much like real life, isn't it? Real people are complex. We are complex masses of emotions and desires, aren't we? The narrative of our lives is rarely simple. The narrative of our lives is rarely smooth. (laughs) There always seems to be tragedy lurking around the corner. Even when we experience great times of triumph and joy. They aren't usually very long-lasting, are they? I love sometimes when I see those who are preparing to be married and we walk through premarital counseling and they have their fairy tale wedding, as it were. And I walk away because I've been married now in a month for eight years. And though I have not been married as, as long as some of you, I know that sometimes the, the bliss of the wedding day is sometimes short-lived because you must then go back home you must then live together you must then wrestle with all of the weaknesses that you have married into uh, all of the weaknesses and sins that you have married and life gets real really quick oftentimes and oftentimes due to our own disobedience we experience the, the rough and difficult patches of life, oftentimes because we are unwilling to fully comply with God's command and will. What was God's command to Jacob? Go to Bethel. Where has Jacob gone? I think I'll stop in Shechem. And I think I'll live here. Bethel was 20 miles from Shechem. And Jacob stops 20 miles short of obedience to God. 20 miles was one day's journey, 24 hours. God calls Jacob to Bethel, and he stops one day short of obedience. God calls Jacob to inherit the promised land, and he stopped stopped 24 hours from fully complying to God's word and will. Jacob with all of his new resources, sees Shechem as an opportunity. Shechem was a a kind of central city. It was a place that was rich with trade and commerce. And Jacob is now seeing that he could possibly flourish in this land. I could flourish in a city like Shechem. Maybe I'll just stay here. Maybe I can gain more capital than I've already acquired. It seems like a good business opportunity for me to stay here in Shechem. He did not go to Bethel immediately as the Lord had commanded him. Nor did he fulfill his vow to go to Bethel and build the altar there. 
He was technically in the promised land. He was in Canaan. He just wasn't in Bethel. He was in the land where he could live. But he was not in the land where he had been called to die. And it seems as though Jacob has gone from a position of weakness to now being in a position of power. And it appears as though maybe he had been tired of being weak. He'd been weak for 20 years with Laban. Under the the thumb of his oppressive uncle. He had been weak before Esau, showing great displays of humility and weakness. He is now weak, walking with a limp. And it seems as though Jacob's tired of being weak. Maybe it's his turn to be strong. Maybe it's his turn to gain some capital of his own, money of his own. Jacob had stopped, though, 20 miles, 24 hours, and one day short of obeying God fully. He believed that God would somehow be satisfied with Jacob going most of the way, even though he did not go all of the way. And could it be that Jacob's thirst for pressing on in full obedience to God had been somehow quenched in some way? I'm done. He seems to lack the desire to go any further, either because his eyes have been distracted from the potential of gaining more wealth in Shechem or because Jacob is seeing that there are potentially greater mountains that he might have to climb once he reaches Bethel. In either case, Israel is behaving like Jacob all over again. This would have resonated with the Israelites as well, the first readers of this book. And there is much that the nation of Israel would have have seen in their descendant Jacob that they would have identified with. They too were at the doorstep of the promised land and never went in. They too were wrestling with God and wrestling with men. And they too continue to stop just short of obedience, distracted by all of the worldly unbelievers who were around them and wanting what they had. They often were tired of fighting. They were often tired of the fight that lie right around the corner next for them. They too saw the the ease with which the nations around them lived and they wanted to join in step with the pagan nations, believing that they would uh, live a better life. They simply became like the world around them. And, And we must be careful of this as well. We can so easily fall into the trap of desiring a life of retirement spiritually. Do you ever want to spiritually retire? You may say, what does that mean? Do you you ever want to say, I've read enough. I've prayed enough. I've gone to enough enough church services. I've shared the gospel. I think I'm done. I think I'll just mind my own business and worship Jesus in my own way. I'm done. And for some of us, the opposite is, 
I'm not done with Jesus. I'm not done with God. But I, I will at least get to as close to the world without going all the way in. Reminds us of Lot, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Lot who, who made his tent next to Sodom. And then before you know it, he's in Sodom. And then before you know it, he's being rescued before Sodom is destroyed. A life where we go away, a ways with God, but not all the way with God, is a life that is not accepted by God. He won't settle for it. Know that, believer. He won't settle. He won't allow us to go almost all the way. He won't allow us to go or stop 20 miles short of obedience. And He won't also be satisfied with our half efforts to obey Him. How often have we lost our desires to press on? How often have we lost our thirst for all that God has commanded And it's been so easily uh, quenched simply by the thought of the effort that it will take and that it will require on our part to take to trust him one limping step after limping step. Do I want to keep walking? I said to the men this past week at the mission, we talked about the cost of following Christ And I said to them this, when you are tempted to believe that what you are doing is costing you so much, remember this, it costs you nothing. When you are on the edge of your bed wondering whether or not it's worth it to keep on going, whether or not you feel like you are willing to pay the price, remember this, you've paid nothing. Christ has paid it all. It is because of Christ that you are even in the position of receiving grace that we would be reluctant to say, shall I go another step? This cross is so heavy. You've bared no cross. Christ has bared the cross. When we are reluctant to take another step, Christ has taken a step. Christ is our all in all. Christ has done it all. Your life belongs to Him. And I said to the men, don't think about what it will cost you to follow Christ. Think about what it will cost you if you don't. What it will cost you if you don't follow Christ. That's the cost. There is no cost in following Him. He has paid it all. We must never say, this is as far as I go, I'm done. Dear one, may I say something to you that is meant for your encouragement this morning. If you be a child of God, God will not be satisfied with your and my almost almost obedience. If you be a child of God, God will not allow you or I to stop just short of submission. If you and I be a child of God, you and I will be probed, we will be pricked, we will be chastised, chastised, we will be vexed until we are on our feet once again, up and moving, onward toward obedience in God. 
And do you know that you would not be up on your feet if it were not for God? Do you know that you would have no eyes if God did not give them to you? You would have no ears if God did not give them to you. It's the work of God. Oh, it's so hard. Brother and sister, if it were not for the the grace of God, you would still be lost and wandering, thinking that you were found. Thinking you and I knew where we're going and we don't. You might notice at the end of the 33rd chapter, Jacob even builds an altar in Shechem. Now, where did Jacob say he would build the altar? He has made a commitment to build the altar in Bethel. And here is Jacob stopping short of obedience and then even offering to God a token, a false token of obedience. Here is the altar. And the name of the altar is uh, God is the God of Israel. You are still my God. I've not fully complied to what you've commanded me, but you're still my God. Is he Jacob? Well, I love him. Do you, Jacob? I would ask, and I'm sure Jacob was being at least probed in his own heart by God with this question. Jacob, do you get to determine and define what love for God looks like? Or does God determine what love for God looks like? We don't get to determine what loving God means. God determines it. We don't get to define when we say, I love God, what that means. God defines it. How does God define it? God gives us his holy and inspired word, the only certain rule of faith and obedience. It says, do this and live. When we say, I think I'll do it my own way. I've made my own book. Would you like to see it one day? These are my suggestions for you, God, on how I think I should live for you and how I think I should love you. God would smack us in the face with that book. I am saddened, and and, and let me say this, there are times when I preach and someone will say, he's talking about me, let me uh, reassure you, my friend, I am talking about you, and I am talking about me, I am talking about all of us, there is not one of us who loves God, you and I have never in our lives done anything purely for the glory of God, we say And pray that all things would be done for his glory. We have not once in our lives done all things purely for the glory of God. There has only been one who has done all things for the glory of God. There has only been one who has lived and loved God with all of his heart, his mind, his soul, and his strength. You and I have never loved God with all of our heart. You and I have have never loved God with all of our mind, our soul, and our strength. There is only one who we can point to and say, but he... He is one who has loved you with all of his heart, his mind, his soul, and his strength. Look to him. I'm often saddened when I hear believers say from time to time when they hear a command from God, I don't believe that you have to do all of those things in order to love God. Well, then why did he say them? Why did he say them? And I'm often surprised when I say... Please explain to me uh, how you see him saying something differently there. I can't and I won't. Then I suggest to you, dear friend, then silence your mouth and obey him. Oh, and I'm speaking to myself. All of us, 
How many times do we say, I don't know if I want to go that far? Huh? How many times do we say, I'm comfortable here. I know he's calling me there, but I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm, if I'm desiring, if I'm honest, to go there. I know the difficulty there. I know the commitment there. And I know he's calling me to it. Don't you dare, though, my dear brother or sister, say, but God will understand. No, he's calling you and I to it. Here's what we should pray. God, help me in my weakness. I know it's there you're calling me to. And God, I am weak to get there. Uh, Give me the strength to limp there, Lord. But don't you and I dare settle in Shechem and think he'll be okay with it. We're going to see why he won't. God determines what it means to love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Jacob builds an altar in the wrong place. And you can almost hear God say, nice try, Jacob. What was this? True obedience or self-deception? A token of worship? Jacob just trying to keep God happy? Playing the supplanter all over again. My dear friend, you cannot supplant God. You are only supplanting yourself if you think that you can somehow, in some way, offer God a token that he will be satisfied with in replacement to your full obedience. And don't we do that from time to time? My church attendance will be my token to God. Now he'll be okay with me. My, my from time to time prayers will, will be a token to God. Now he'll be okay with me. Believing that in some way, some wise, we might gain the favor of God or appease God. With some attendance, some offering, some reading, some praying. Now are you okay with me? Now will you give me that job, that promotion? Now will you make the marriage okay? Good. And then I can walk away from it. And then when it begins to become intense again, I'll go back to church again. Do you see the, the error in that? If your heart does not belong to God, all of these things are done in vain. Good things. But if they're not done in spirit and in truth, they are done in vain. They are not accepted by God. God revealed himself first to Jacob as the God of Bethel. Go there. God will not settle for compromised affections and half-hearted obedience. And what was the result of Jacob stopping just short of obedience? What was the consequence? In order to stir Jacob's heart to full obedience, listen to this, God allows, and may I even dare say, God even orchestrates A circumstance wherein Jacob will reap the bitter fruits of his disobedience. We must not be deceived into thinking that we can give our hearts only half ways to God. 
and that we will not suffer the consequences. The devil is a liar. Sin does have consequences. The devil is a liar. You and I will not get away with it. The devil is a liar. God will not allow his children to pursue sin. And there be no punishment for that pursuit. If we give in to sin, we will suffer the consequences. Why? Because you belong to God. Because you belong to God and listen, and because God loves you too much to allow you and I to get away with sin. God loves you and I too much to allow us to pursue sin without feeling the weight of our sinfulness and get away with it. Can you imagine pursuing sin all the while saying, Whew, got away with that one. Got away with that one. There will be consequences so that we might see how we have strayed away from God and so that we might know the danger of straying away from God so that we will turn from sin. And let me say to you, oftentimes these consequences, they will not just affect you. They will affect those who are around you as well. It's just mine. I'll be the one to carry it. No. You know how many people will be hurt if you keep going that way? If we keep going that way? In Jacob's case, the bitter fruit is rape. And let me pause. Murder. Looting and pillaging and kidnapping. And all of this because Jacob stopped 20 miles short of obedience. It did not and would not affect only him. Let's go on to our second point. This will be all of the chapter which I will not reread. The consequences of stopping short of obedience. This is verses 31, 1 through 31. Jacob's daughter, Dinah. It's interesting that the scriptures say Jacob's daughter, and then it says uh, Dinah's daughter. And it is an emphasis, emphasis on whose daughter she is, who is her mother, yes. But it is also an emphasis on a matter of favoritism. We will see that Jacob is, is not far from being a man who commits the sin of favoritism in his family. He will uh, lift up and exalt one of his sons in just a few chapters as greater than all of the rest. And we know him as Joseph. The scriptures, they, they ever so subtly paint Dinah as a curious young girl. She is in the land of Shechem for the very first time. And she is curiously, if you can picture it in your mind's eye, she is curiously wandering about this new land. She is exploring the new culture that she has been exposed to. And sadly for Dinah, and for every person who was living there in Shechem, this 
uh, seemingly uh, harmless pursuit of curiosity ends in disaster for everyone in Shechem. Dinah has curiously gone to see how the Canaanite women carry on. She's been seen by the prince of Shechem. His name is Shechem. And just as with the very first sin of all, seeing quickly led to the forbidden fruit being taken. She has been seen and she will be violated. The historian Josephus tells us that she was possibly visiting and exploring this bustling city when she came upon a festival where she was spotted by the prince who was then smitten with lust for her. Shechem, being a prince, he may have felt some sort of entitlement to anything and to anyone that he desired. And so he did what he did, and he disgracefully violated and raped this girl, Dinah. He did to her what no human being should do to another human being. This wicked prince raped this girl. How did this happen? When tragedies like this, and for those of you who have experienced this, I am so deeply sorry for you. And the question is always this, how did this happen? What was she doing there? Where were her parents? Well, let's deal with her father. Where is he? He's nowhere. Why? Why isn't he with his daughter? Maybe because she was Leah's daughter and not Rachel's. Maybe her, his care and attention for her was, was not what it should be if maybe she was Rachel's daughter. This poor, naive girl was taken advantage of by a man of the world. A pagan. And at this point, it's a warning for all of us parents, with girls and with boys. Watch your children. Know where they are. Know who they're with. It was not safe for a child to roam in the days of Jacob. And man is just as wicked today as they were in the times of Jacob. Keep a watchful eye on your little ones. And teach them to have a watchful eye as well. Why? There are Shechem's around every corner. There is a Shechem around every corner waiting to take advantage of our children. Watch them. Teach them not to be naive. Teach them not to be so trusting of everyone. Be careful. Why was she there? Well, we've answered the question of our father. Let's answer the question of what is she doing there. And then let's go back to her father. Jacob brought her there. She is in Shechem because Jacob stopped 20 miles short of obedience. She is there because Jacob, in his poor decision, has exposed his family to pagans. He's living among them. And this could have all been avoided. If Jacob had just done what he had told God he would do, 
than what God had commanded him to do. Have, have you known? Have you ever known the great regret of saying, if I would have just done the right thing, none of this would have happened? If I would have just been here when I said I would have been here, none of this would have ever happened. And dear ones, you and I can avoid that path of regret. You and I can avoid that path of falling short of obedience. You and I can have a clear conscience by just doing what God has said. I think of uh, those who have... I better not go there. Shechem disgracefully violates Leah. And I want to emphasize that. I don't want to pass over that. It is a disgrace. Those kind of people, they need to be in jail. They need to have life in jail. Let those who are in jail for petty crimes, for homelessness and all of those other things, let them go Put these men in jail. And throw away the key. But he does something kind of strange that, that we don't often see in Scripture. He desires to marry her. He wants Leah to be his wife. But let's not get the wrong idea about Shechem. Just because he wants to marry Dinah does not mean that he is a righteous man. We must not assume that he is somehow doing uh, something noble in his desiring to marry Leah, that, that maybe he wants to be in a monogamous relationship with Leah. No, he's a prince. So therefore, we can assume that he probably has other wives, and she would just be one more of them. But he wants to make some kind of reparation, repairing for his sin. And he asked his father, King Hamor, to get Leah to be his wife. That would mean Hamor would need to speak to Jacob and get Jacob's blessing. And there would need to be a bride price paid for this young girl. Jacob hears of his daughter's abuse and does what I, can, what I cannot imagine any good father doing, especially those who have daughters. Jacob, here, here's what Jacob does. He does nothing. Not a thing. He's as, as an old man who sits in his rocking chair while, while uh, storms are, are all around him and he seems to be unfazed. Men, let me say to you, Jacob is no model of how to be a father. And, and this might be one of the points for Israel. You were not chosen because you are the best of them all. You were chosen because of the grace of God. And Jacob's apathy is contrasted by his son's outrage. They come in from the field after they heard what has been done. They, they are essentially rushing in to say who's going to get it for what they've done to their sister. They are beside themselves. This was their sister. And they acted appropriately. They were filled with fury and anger. They called it a disgrace, something that should not be done. And their father seems to say nothing. Yes, you're right, sons. Let's do something about this. There's not a word from Jacob. 
And so the father of Shechem, Hamor, in verses 8 through 12, he has a business proposition for Israel. We can become one people. We can be one community. If you allow my son to marry your daughter, we could become one people. Now, Jacob says nothing. This king is almost trying to excuse what his son has done by saying, let's just all marry each other. That's the way we can work it out. We can become one people. You prosper, we prosper together. But it's interesting that Jacob doesn't say anything. His sons are the ones who speak up. His sons are the ones who say, we cannot do this. You've done what should not be done. You've violated our sister. And Shechem, he also speaks in. and He almost seems to know that he's done a disgraceful thing and says, anything you want. Anything you ask for, for me to have her, I'll pay for it. You name the price, I've got it. The sons of Jacob say, we cannot accept this. This is unacceptable. This intermarriage should not happen. We will not intermarry with you. Do, do you realize what Hamor and Shechem are offering them as well? They are saying, and you can buy land here. You can trade here. The land is yours. Well, what's the promise given to Jacob? The land. And Jacob is, is, as it were, sitting back and hearing this proposition, almost saying, maybe we go this way to get the land. Maybe this is the way that God has ordained for us to inherit the land. By negotiation, Jacob. By intermarriage, Jacob. The land was to be received by faith, not by negotiation. They were called to be a distinct community from those around them. And it is at this point that Jacob could have spoken up and been a witness to his faith. Jacob could have told them about the one true God. Jacob could have told them about how he met with God, that God gave him grace in the place of all of his sins, that they should come and trust in the one true God. It could have been a great opportunity for Jacob to share his own sins, his own failures, the grace that he received, and call the men to join him to worship God. But he doesn't do, not only does he not do this, he doesn't do anything. He says not a word. And he misses an opportunity to be a witness, and he allows his sons to take the lead in the response to this offer. Verses 14 through 17, they said, a disgrace. But they had something else in mind. They said marriage outside of the covenant community is not appropriate. Uh, we've got a proposition for you. If you want to be one with us, then take an external mark and become like us. They asked for the sign of the Abrahamic covenant circumcision to be applied to all of the men of the city. What were they doing? They were using circumcision to draw these men into their snare. Oh, they are truly the sons of Jacob. They have learned well at their father's knee, haven't they? From Adam 
It does not take long for sin to take hold. From Adam, it doesn't take long for mankind to get a hold of this sin thing and become professional sinners. Jacob deceived his brother to steal his birthright. And now the sons of Jacob deceived these men in order to massacre them. And what makes it worse is that this deceit of Jacob's sons would be cloaked, covered in the form of religion. Not just any religion. The one true religion and using the sign of the covenant to draw these men into their sword. It was to be a mark by which they were distinguished and separated from all the people. And here, that mark has been used as a tool to gain an advantage in war. What a disgrace. They are no better than the men who have violated their sister. And here's what the men of Shechem do. Shechem and his father, they go back to the men of the city. They gather at the gate, which is like the center place of meeting. And Shechem begins to tell them, these guys are reasonable. These are reasonable guys over here. Here's what they want us to do. Just be circumcised. And then we can inter- intermarry with them. We can have their, 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 uh, we can have their cattle and their livestock. Theirs will be ours. Ours will, ours will be theirs. We'll grow rich. Later, Shechem even says, they're pretty nice people. <laughs> Read on in your scriptures. And they were, they were very kind to us, they say. So all of the men heard this proposition. And they agree to it. All of the men go through this, I can imagine, painful procedure. And while they are recovering from this procedure... The Bible details in verses 25 to 29, the sons of Jacob come upon the men of that city and they slay every single one of them. While they are in pain, while they are able to to fight back, they slaughter every single man. They kill the king. They kill the prince. They got back Dinah. They looted the city. They took the flocks. They took their wealth. They took their children and their women. Simeon and Levi return the initial sin in a multiplied form. They are no better than the men who have violated their sister. They are supposed to be the people of God. And they are behaving even worse than the pagans of that land. How did Jacob respond? Jacob says, what did you do? Now all of the people around us are going to think bad about me. He says, you've made me odious. Means, means You've made me stink to them now. Now I'm going to smell to them. Can you imagine? All of these things that have taken place and Jacob is only concerned about The one that Jacob's only ever been concerned about. Himself. Sons, you have placed me in a very difficult position. 
No moral outrage. Look what you did to me. It's the brothers who are outraged by their father's lack of outrage. They say, these men treated our sister like a prostitute. Interesting. That's the way the Bible ends that chapter. Imagine if we were just left there. One man's sin. Everybody pays for it. They deserved it. And it happened because Jacob stopped short of obedience. None of this had to happen. It happened because Jacob failed to give all of himself to God. He chose to hold back a little of his of himself. And God allowed this to happen. Dare I say again, he orchestrated all of this so that Jacob might know the consequences of not doing what God commands. If we sin, there will be consequences. If you belong to God, he loves you and I too much to get away with it. Again, as I said in the previous point, God allows us to experience the weight of our own sinfulness in order to wean us away from it. So that we might be able to see how we have strayed and the danger of straying away from God. Now, the end of the chapter. Imagine if I said, grace be with you. Where is the good news? Well, thankfully... Our first readers would not read this in a chapter form, but they would read this in a flowing form, meaning the interpreters of the scriptures had placed these chapter breaks in them because the chapter does not end there. And neither does Jacob's life. Praise be to God. Our third and final point, the relentless grace of God. And it's found in chapter 35. And I will only read the first two verses. Three, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there. Make an altar to to God there who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress And who has been with me wherever I have gone. That's the new phase. The new new chapter in Jacob's life if you will. The sons of Jacob ignore all of Shechem's efforts to atone. And to make retribution. Restitution for what he had done. This one man's sin. Would be the cause of the entire people being wiped out by the sons of Jacob. The sons of Jacob who had appointed themselves as a divine judgments or agents of judgment over those people. Think about this. Where would Jacob and his family be if Esau took the same approach to them that they took to the people of Shechem? They would be no people at all. Esau had the power to carry out the same kind of judgment, didn't he? To destroy them all. And yet where grace has been given, grace has not been returned. And here is Jacob, 
up and down, success and failure. What are we to make of him? One minute he is Israel, overcoming with God and man. The next he is Jacob, compromising bystander to the atrocity, an atrocity that we, that we rarely see on TV, an entire people wiped out. What are we to say about Jacob? Except that he looks so much like us, doesn't he? We so often compromise. We so often fall short of obedience. We may not have been in the same situation as Jacob. We may have never known the lows of Jacob or the highs of Jacob. Maybe we are more mediocre sinners. And maybe we are also even more mediocre saints than Jacob. Maybe we could say, well, look at his home life. The favoritism that was found there. His father did not give him the love that he deserved. Maybe we could point it back to Adam and Eve. It's because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Yes, you would be right. There's plenty of blame to go around, isn't there? But what is striking is the good news here. And that is this. God is not done with Jacob. That's the good news. In spite of the fact that even after the face-to-face encounter with God, Jacob is still very much Jacob. And God is not done with Jacob. God is not done with you or I either. He's not stamped by God, rejected and sent away. You and I are not stamped by God as rejected when we fall and fail to fully obey God and placed on the shelf as being rejected either. God appears to Jacob and says, get up and go now. You've seen what happens when you don't obey. Now obey me and go. Sending Jacob limping back to the beginning. Back to Bethel. The place where it all began. Reminded of his own weakness. Reminded of the thread by which his own life once hung. Where he fled from his brother. Had nothing but the clothes on his back. It was there where he offered the sacrifice to God. And it was there that God was calling him back home. Can I ask you, dear ones, in closing? How do you deal with the problem of sin? Notice how in this chapter, the end, there is no answer to sin. Jacob is unhappy with what has been done. The sons, they are not even happy with what has been done. And neither one of them had the right answer. One answer from the men, uh, Jacob's sons, is kill them all. The answer from Jacob is do nothing. There's a certain justice, it seems like, to kill them all. I, as speaking of, uh, as a father to a daughter who I love, Dearly, there would not be, I think, in my own mind, anything that would at least want, that would be able to want to stop me or be able to stop me in my own mind from doing what I think should be done to someone who violates my daughter. 
I say that at least here. And there seems to be a kind of justice there, right? And we practice that in our legal system, don't we? Three strikes and you're out. Put them away for the rest of their lives. But there's no lasting peace there, is there? It does not deal with the sin in any lasting way. It just obliterates the sinner. It gets them out of sight. It gets them out of mind. But it's still there. And if the sons of Jacob are too harsh, then Jacob is too lenient. He would rather avoid dealing with the sin altogether because of the messy effect that it will have and having to deal with all of that mess for the rest of his life. I'd rather just not even deal with it. You know those people? Forget it. Not even going to deal with it. And then the other, who you could not put a strong enough door in front of to stop them from getting their revenge. Do you notice that neither approach works? One way destroys the sinner. The other way ignores the sin. And I wonder if you could also see two heretical extremes here. One of legalism and one of antinomianism. In one case, it was a destruction of the sinner. In the other, it was a mocking of the name of God and not a glorification of his name. The one who defiled Israel and his daughter, he is destroyed. But listen to this. But there is no one saved in this chapter. Not one. And Jacob does not have a better answer either. Is there any way to deal with sin righteously? Could there be a way that treats the awfulness of sin with the seriousness that it deserves, and yet reserves, reaches out and redeems the sinner. Yeah, there is. And it's not man's way. It's God's way. God offers a substitutionary sacrifice. A sinless sacrifice without spot or blemish must be put to death in the place of the one who has sinned and violated God. Who's the one violated here? God is the one violated. Who is the one who's done the violating? You and I have done the, have done the violating. Who will pay for this sin? The one who is a substitute for you and I. The Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that when Jacob came to that altar in Bethel and offered that lamb, he was reminded that lamb is spotless and sinless. That that lamb is taking my place. As Jacob offered up this, this lamb, he must have been reminded of the story that his father Isaac told him. Son, there was a time when I was upon that altar. And I should have been offered for my sin. But God provided a ram caught in the thicket who stood in my place. And son, there will be a day when God sends one who will stand in the place of all of who, all those who are his, who will take their place and be a sin offering for God. And it will be an offering once and for all. The wages of sin is death. And that wage must be paid. But the good news of the gospel is that that wage is not paid by you or I. 
That wage is paid by the spotless, sinless one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands in our place. The sinner, after all of this, can still be redeemed. Imagine, instead of the people dying for the sins of the king as those did in Shechem, the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and dies for the people. The death of the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, it can deal with your and my sin no matter what it is. No one is beyond reach, even when we fail to go all the way. Praise be to God that when we fail to go all the way, he doesn't say, just stay there then. No, you're mine. You will come with me. When we come short, God does not. He will go all the way even when we don't. We may suffer all kinds of pains from our disobedience, but if we belong to God, we will not yet be abandoned. We're here in His hand. And we will not be taken out. He's not done with Jacob. He's not done with you and I. May I encourage you in closing, don't stop one day short, 24 hours or 20 miles from obedience. Seek the Lord with all of your heart and ask him to make his commands your delight. Let's pray.